0: I first met the young David Miliband in the early 1990s before he became Head of Policy for Tony Blair. Then, when Labour won in 1997, Tony selected David as the head of his Number 10 Policy Unit. A few years later, David became an MP. His rise was meteoric. By 2007, he was Foreign Secretary. Everyone remembers that in 2010, he was narrowly beaten in the Labour leadership contest by his brother, Ed. A few years after that, David left British politics for a very different career. He took on the role of CEO and president of the International Rescue Committee, a multi-million dollar charity based in the USA. I wanted to find out how he goes about taking on such vast challenges. I caught up with him in his New York office.
1: The International Rescue Committee is a venerable institution, um, but the great thing is it's become a dynamic institution. It's venerable because it was founded... You couldn't get better than this. It was founded by Albert Einstein in the 1930s. He was a refugee in New York. He wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt saying, for God's sake, you've got to tell your husband to rescue Jews from Europe because they're being persecuted and they're gonna be killed. And as you know, the United States did not admit many Jews from Europe in the 1930s, many were killed. But uh, the International Rescue Committee was founded by Einstein and 50 other uh, of his friends to rescue Jews and intellectuals and people being persecuted in Nazi Germany and in occupied Europe, our first employee, was uh, a New York Times reporter who we we relieved of his New York Times responsibilities, and he set up a safe house in Marseille um, where he issued 2,000 fake passports to rescue 2,000 people who'd otherwise faced the gas chambers, including Mark Chagall, who made it to America as a result of the International Rescue Committee. So those are the shoulders that we uh, stand on. And obviously at its founding, the the focus of the organization was on refugees. It worked in Hungary in the 1950s for people persecuted by the Soviet Union. Um, By the 90s, it worked in the Balkans. Um, And then it it rather broadened its work to being a humanitarian charity, and we use that phrase uh, today. It was a secular organization, unlike some, and it was what's called multi-mandated. It didn't just work on education or health or children. It was trying to deal with uh, the situation as it found it and all of people's needs. Uh, That's a rather long-winded way of saying that um, I came here in January 2013. I was in Parliament at the time. Uh, I felt that I was at a a dead end, really, unable to say what I really thought without causing a a soap opera. And so um, there were three things that I said to the interview panel when I flew to New York to apply for the job, which I had to do. One was that issues at the boundary of foreign policy and humanitarian work are some of the most difficult questions in global public policy. How do you get medical aid into Syria? How do you tackle sexual violence in Democratic Republic of Congo? How do you negotiate with the Taliban in Afghanistan to deliver education that is empowering to girls as well as to boys? So one, it's difficult questions. And as you know, I like difficult questions. Um, I like to ask them and sometimes try and answer them. Uh, the second thing I said to them was that the IRC was a bit of a sleeping giant in that it wasn't very well known, and it had this real focus on victims of war, but it it, it, it hadn't um, fulfilled the potential that it had in that space, that there were all sorts of anti-poverty organisations, development charities that had moved into the humanitarian sector. And it wasn't clear that uh, the IRC was a leader of this sector, and I thought it could be, especially with the the shoulders that we were standing on. And thirdly, as you know, but maybe your listeners don't, both of my parents were refugees. My dad was a refugee from yes. Belgium in 1940. My mum came to the UK on her own as a 12-year-old in 1946 from Poland. Um, she'd lost her father in the war, and um, or her father was killed by the Nazis in the war in a, in a concentration camp. And she'd survived in in hiding. My my dad had been in the Navy and and been allowed to stay in the UK. And so, in some way, it felt that there was a bit of, if not poetry, at least closing of the circle in me leading a, a charity that helped refugees amongst other victims of war, given my own family history. So that was the rationale for me coming here. I apologize for the long-winded uh, answer, but yes. it does set the stage in a way that I arrived in September 2013. It was a $430 million U.S.-based NGO that did a bit of work in the U.S. It was an important refugee resettlement agency in the U.S., and it, and it worked around the world on humanitarian issues. So that's, the, that's if you like, the table setting.
0: Yeah, it's beautifully described. And I think people will find that interesting. And the family connection to the idea is also probably a very powerful motivator for you. So eight and a half years later, there you are. And how has the IRC changed? Probably I'd pick out three things. One is we are much bigger. I mean, I don't
1: think bigger is always better, but we're we're now a $1.2 billion a year charity. We raise $1.2, right. $1.2 billion and we spend $1.2 billion rather than $430 million. So first of all, the capacity... That we have as a result of our funds is much greater. Secondly, I do think that we are a much more clearly mission-driven organization. And we should come back to that because it's the heart of the right. strategy. I think we've really and we've really clarified um, who we serve, where we work, and what counts as success, which were the three questions that were at the heart of our strategy 2020 and 2014. So I think that In our employee engagement survey before um, COVID, something like 85% or 86% of the organization said they knew about the strategy and they knew that we were driven by the the core elements of the strategy, which we uh, come on to discuss. So I think, secondly, given the dangers of sort of boiling the ocean, you know, there's so many crises, so many things to do. I think that we have our outcomes framework. We have our commitment to impact and evaluation. We're now the largest impact evaluation agency in the humanitarian sector, so we do more studies about what works. Um, We have a really, I think, respected innovation, approach to innovation in our R&D lab, which is called Airbell, in honor of the Marseille safe house that we set up in 1940. So Uh, it's a safe house for new ideas, which is kind of Nice. um, nice. So I think, secondly, there's coherence about what we're about we know what we're trying to do more clearly and then uh, i think thirdly we've found a more distinctive voice we said in our in our 2014 15 strategy that we wanted to be the operational and thought leader of the humanitarian sector and to be a thought leader you need followers and to have followers you've got to have a voice and i think that uh, we've we've taken what stands which i think would have been considered brave on afghanistan on yemen on syria uh, that have tried to do more than just be the charity that says, we need money, give us money, things are bad. We've tried to be a solutions-oriented NGO, and we, in our communications and in our advocacy. The fourth is that the weight of our personnel are very significantly local, and I'm very pleased that we've increased that. So now we track very carefully, 62% of grade six and above, which is the top six grades of our country programs, are now Local hires, which is I think important and, and yeah. good, and it's gone up from forty nine percent eighteen month or two years ago, and we, we want more of that. Although it's worth saying that in, in in some of the places we work, it would actually be dangerous to have someone who was genuinely a national of that country. You've got to be careful. Yeah. So it shouldn't. We're not aiming for one hundred percent, but nonetheless, uh, we've built on strength of local hiring. But there's another thing I just want to say about our people. and uh, and our organization, which is that I think we are much better balanced now between people with a very strong humanitarian background and people who've come in with different sectors of experience. So I think we're much more of a tri-sector organisation now. People, you know, predominantly humanitarians, but people from the government sector and some people from the private sector as well, um, especially in functional areas, whether it be IT or human resources or strategy. We're not subject to Stockholm syndrome. I think we've got a a nice uh, ability now to recognise that people from outside, I hope this is true, I think this is true, that people from outside our own sector are embraced rather than warded off. And so those yeah. are the kind of things that I think have, have changed. Of course, um, strategy never finishes. And, but I feel we're on the cusp of some big things around our central, the central nodes of our new strategy, which we can come on to talk about are about impact and scale. And I feel we're on the cusp of doing some big things, both for our own clients and for those of other organisations.
0: Give me an example of things you're most proud of that the IRC has achieved over that time's on-the-ground helping people with their very difficult lives in many cases. Are there two or three examples just to bring some colour and frontline reality to the conversation?
1: I mean, I think that the the first thing i pick out is that 80% of acutely malnourished under five kids get no help at all from the humanitarian sector. I mean, it's unbelievable, really. I mean, th- y- you always used to say about our England and Wales school programme that if um, if 50% of planes at... Um, Heathrow Airport oh. crashed, then there would be, or failed to land properly, there'd be a national outcry, but 50% of English and Welsh boys and girls in 1997 were not achieving level four oh. in, in in English and maths, and you, you said that was a scandal. So 80% of acutely malnourished um, under fives around the world get no help at all. There are 50 million of these kids, and... 17 or 18 million are in our kind of places, probably more now, actually, but are in fragile and conflict states. And the WHO had mandated that there should be one approach for severe acute malnutrition, which is administered by UNICEF, and another approach to moderate acute malnutrition administered by the World Food Programme, which partly explains why there was 80% not getting any help at all. And we looked at this as an absolutely was worse than a tragedy. I mean, it, it was just an indictment, really. And so through our own money, our own research and in innovation, we developed a combined protocol for severe and moderate acute malnutrition, which could be delivered by community health workers rather than through static health facilities. And essentially, we think we can flip the, uh, the figures. Now, we can't do that alone. So it's still work in progress. We've not done it yet. But I think it's still very significant.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, that's fantastic if if you're able to facilitate or catalyse that flipping.
1: Yes, I think that a second area where we've really, I think, led the field Everyone knows that gender-based violence is a traumatic part of the, and an exacerbated part of life in emergencies for women and for girls. In the 1990s, my, my predecessors worked very hard on, on this and did some great work to show how to help the survivors of gender-based violence. In the 2000s, before I came, we developed an approach that said, look don't just talk about helping survivors, talk about women's protection and empowerment so that you're trying to um, build educational employment, other capacity. We've really built on that to try to tackle gender inequality in a whole range of ways, both within our organization and for our clients. The stories that, of, that I've heard of women saying that they were a survivor of sexual violence but our programs have helped them set up a business. The business helped them pay for their kids' education, their kids' education helped them get to university. And, the, and then I met the daughter, this was in um, Kampala, who said, yeah, and I'm getting a master's in public health, and I want to go back to South Sudan to save my country. Maybe. So I think that our work in, in that area, again, huge problems, but still exciting, interesting Uh, really good. I think a couple of other things, which I won't give you in the same sort of detail, cash delivery, really important. We always ask why not cash as the first question, because actually giving people cash is is often the best way of helping them. Uh, Another example would be around information. We've really embraced human-centered design. So in Greece in 2015, what's the first thing that any refugee does? They switch on their mobile phone. If they've come across a boat from uh, Turkey, they take it out of a uh, plastic wrapping, they switch it on, and it's all in Greek, of course. So that's no good for them. We set up something called Refugee.info. A million refugees used this online service, and now it's in South America, um, where it's become a real-time service for women on the run. You can get, say, I'm in this part of El Salvador, I need help, we, we can give that. It's in the Middle East, and it's being rolled out in Europe as well, so that's pretty exciting those are the kind of practical education, some really interesting work on, I mean, so much of of education and technology doesn't work, but we've actually done some um, work on education technology that does work, which is pretty exciting in uh, Bangladesh. So those are the kind of things that make me excited.
0: Yeah, they're really exciting. And they relate to that point you made right at the beginning about the relationship between foreign policy and humanitarian services to people. It's not just about supporting people in refugee camps, although that's part of it, of course.
1: There's a load of myths that we have to take on. Number one, refugees are in camps. No, 60% of refugees are in urban areas. Two, refugees are out of their countries for a short time. No, they're probably out for 15, 20 years. It's a multi-generational thing. Three, most most, uh, refugees are men. No, most of them are kids, actually. Half of them are kids. Four, most refugees are in rich countries. No, uh, they're in poor countries. 85% of the world's refugees are in poor countries.
0: So that's kind of an interesting challenge as well. It is really. It is really. I mean, and you gave the example of a, of a South Sudanese person in Kampala in Uganda. That's that's much more common than uh, other things.
1: And uh, the, Ukraine, uh, so- the Ukraine crisis is unusual in a way that because people are fleeing to the world's largest, richest single market, there's a chance that we can use the Ukraine crisis to say that the mobilization of governments, of private sector, of people in their own houses, that community mobilisation. That that mobilisation that's being done for Ukrainians, rightly, that needs to happen for other people
0: as well. I mean, nobody would wish that crisis on anybody, of course, but there'll be learnings from it and real opportunities to transform the field. When you talked about the changes in the IRC during your tenure, we didn't talk about how the world has changed. The world has changed dramatically over the last decade or two since uh, you were foreign secretary, for example. You characterise it as the age of impunity. What does that Actually, mean? Well, impunity means action without consequence for you, for the decision maker.
1: It means crimes without punishment in the case of illegal acts. And more colloquially, it means power without accountability. I mean, Baldwin said power without responsibility is the refuge of the harlot throughout the ages. And the essence of impunity is that you can do what you like and if you can do what you like because no one's going to check your power you do do what you like and in the case of people fighting wars it means dropping chemical weapons bombing hospitals killing civilians killing aid workers and essentially what we've seen over the last 15 years in a in a striking parallel line that as as there's been democratic recession in domestic politics around the world, as more countries have slipped from being fully democratic to partially democratic or partially democratic to not democratic or not democratic to even more authoritarian, there's been a, a, a democratic recession across the world. That's not my phrase. That's Larry Diamond at Stanford University. As every regime has become less, less liberal, whether you're living in China or in Hungary, the, the, the situation is less liberal in the international sphere, the rule of law has become almost optional. And we've seen that in Syria, we've seen that in Yemen, we've seen that in Ukraine. And the age of impunity, I argue, is the tip of a a much larger iceberg in which concentrations of power in a whole range of fields lead to the abuse of power. And so the the idea of the age of impunity is that Uh, we are living at a time when we have to reconceive how to push back against the abuse of power and how we develop what, what Galbraith called countervailing power. And we bear witness to the consequences of the abuse of power,
0: but we want to see a much stronger push of countervailing power. So the IRC is dealing with the consequences, the growing consequences of the age of impunity and dealing with it on a larger scale and hopefully... given the examples, more effectively. But something else needs to happen to turn that round. Otherwise, this very dangerous trend will continue. Is that right?
1: Exactly. I mean, that's exactly the the point. And, you know, we are limited. In some countries that we work, we can't speak out about what we see because we fear getting kicked out of the country. And that's happened to other NGOs. Now, that chilling is also happening to the United Nations officials who worry that they'll get kicked out of countries. We published our emergency watch list in December 2021. And it was for the watch list for for the year 2022. And I gave a speech at the Council on Foreign Relations precisely about what we call system failure, states abusing their power, diplomacy failing, legal regime not working, humanitarian and development aid not being able to staunch the dying. And I think that this really tried to marry the foreign policy world and the humanitarian policy world in an interesting way.
0: Let's say you're listening to this and you're an individual citizen of uh, the UK or you're in Pakistan. I have listeners in Pakistan, as you know, or in the US. What can you do about the age of impunity? What can you as a citizen do? Well, number one, you can bear witness
1: to it. So you can yeah. bring transparency, which is the first step towards accountability. And you can either do it yourself by filming it or, and putting it on the cloud, or you can... Um, find other ways to, to, to get it out. Secondly, you can stand up against it because small small acts of protest are important. I mean, the remarkable acts of protest in Russia, for example, at the moment are amazing. Are amazing. Yeah. So you you, you you can stand up against it. If you're living in a democratic country, you and I are British uh, citizens, but the, the, some of what's gone on in the UK is, is impunity. I mean, the prorogation of parliament, the illegal prorogation of parliament was an attempt at impunity. I mean, in the end, it got caught. But so you can stand up against democratic backsliding. You can urge your leaders. I mean, I, I've been arguing, I, I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs about this, saying that the Biden Summit of Democracies, if they took checking the abuse of power as their mantra, and they mobilized the liberal democracies of the world to try to work against the abuse of power, that would be a striking thing. Now, yeah. they've done that in respect of Ukraine. But actually, if, they, if last December's Summit of Democracies has said, we're out there, and we're going to be standing up against the abuse of power, there'd have been a, a clear,
0: if you like, washing line on right. which to hang their, their narrative right. about what they're doing. While we're on this, I mean, you, there you are running a, a huge and increasingly effective humanitarian organisation. But you were Foreign Secretary between 2007 and 2010. How much has that experience helped you do this job? How how much did you learn from being Foreign Secretary?
1: I learned a huge amount about what I didn't know as well as about what I didn't know. So um, the the first rule, the only rule in our office, which I say to interns or to new staff, is never be afraid to ask a question. And I always ask questions. And so what I learned being Foreign Secretary above all is how much I didn't know. And it's a good lesson in life. So always asking questions is, and, and never worrying that people, you know, if people think you're stupid, well, fair enough. I, I once spoke to a group of volunteers. One of them asked me a question which involved an acronym. And I said, oh, w- what does that mean, that acronym? I can't remember what it was. And she said, well, you should know that. And I said, well, you, would you prefer the CEO of the organization to admit when he doesn't know anything or pretend that he always knows something? She said, oh, okay, fair yeah. point. So she then told me what the acronym so I always think you should you, know, you should be able to ask questions. Look, the truth about if you're a foreign minister or if you're a government minister, you can see the big picture, but you can lose sight of the, the ground level. If you're running an NGO, you can see the ground level, but it's very easy to lose sight of the big picture. My aim has been to always try and look from both ends of the telescope, to look at Afghanistan yes. or Ukraine or Syria from the perspective of human-centered design of humanitarian services. So why not cash? Who's our partner? Are we really needed here? Couldn't someone else be doing it? Because if they could be doing it, it doesn't meet our entry and exit criteria. And so we, we don't want to be overstretched. But always having the bigger picture as well, because the truth is that if the bomb's dropping on your part of town, then that's a much bigger impact than the... It's a, it's, a, it's a structuring factor about the the humanitarian service that you're providing. So I feel I'm looking from another end of the telescope, but trying to retain both. But I I would say that a lot of what I've tried to bring to the IRC is a recognition that just saying we're not political isn't enough. We're not. But but we operate in in an environment where the agenda is set by the failure of politics. And I can go on TV and talk in a way that stays the right side of the line because we're not a political organisation, but nonetheless puts the humanitarian effort into the political context and it's become a bit of a cliche but you know when i say humanitarians can staunch the dying but it takes politics to stop the killing that is the essence of the relationship
0: between the two you and i've had uh, lots of conversations that have been influential on me over the years Uh, one of the ones that was most influential on me was when i came to see you in when you were foreign secretary and you said to me Well, we keep trying to deal with the security situation in Pakistan, but we'll never resolve it unless we deal with the institutions of the state, education, health. But that sense of building states that are effective is actually connecting both ends of the telescope in a way. There's a great sort of corpus of
1: thinking about so-called system strengthening in the literature about development, and there are limits to it. Of course, in a lot of the places that we work, either there isn't a system or The system involves the the government of the country being a a combatant in the conflict. 48% of the world's extreme poor now live in fragile and conflict states, not just poor states. So if you're a poor state that's trying to do the right thing, that was really the countries that did better during the Millennium Development Goals. Since 2015, it's become increasingly evident that states where there's conflict and states where states are in conflict with their own people or groups of them, that is a huge driver of of poverty and uh, insecurity. So we're often trying to react where there isn't a system, but it takes states to build a system. It's a narrow corridor, but um, yeah. that, that, that is important. And where we can, we work with, you know, we cons- when we talk about partners of the IRC, those are governments. So in the Middle East, where we've got this $100 million uh, MacArthur Prize that we won with Sesame Workshop for tackling social and emotional trauma among young kids as a result of the Syria war, we're working with the government of Lebanon, with the government of Jordan, so that after our project finishes, the materials and the techniques and the approaches
0: continue. And that's a really important part of that. Yeah, and what I, I learned as a result of that work in Pakistan is that when you go off to sort of build an education system or improve a health system or whatever it is, but you have to fix some basic things about how the state works appointments on merit, officials who are good staying in the post for a long time, not having constant churn, sticking with an agenda, getting regular data so you actually know what's happening. For some of the programmes you're designing, the capacity of states to build on what you do after you've finished is going to be fundamental, isn't it, to, to the longer-term strategy? I don't
1: want to say we suffer under the tyranny of short-term grants that run out, because that, that there are tyrannies around the world, so the word's wrong. But we are massively constrained. You know, we do $700 million worth of internet, more, $800 million worth of international aid work. We're running 500 different grants. So the average grant size is a million and a half dollars. The average length is 11 or 12 months. We've got long-term problems. We're trying to fix them with short-term
0: solutions. Well, surprise, surprise, that doesn't work. Coming towards the end of our conversation, it's been absolutely riveting. And when you talk about the strategy through to your 100th anniversary, just... Spell out what the key elements of that are going to be. What you've learned from your experience so far, and what will change in the next decade.
1: Yeah, strategy is really important to me. Strategy is, is my version of where there's no vision, the people perish. And
0: yeah, yeah, you're and you are a master of strategy. Right back, right back to the early Blair years. I don't know if I'm a
1: master of strategy, but I, I believe in it, and I quite enjoy saying that what they teach you in business school—that um, culture eats strategy for lunch—is wrong. And in fact, strategy eats culture for lunch, which I. I I sort of believe enough to make it a point worth arguing. What what I actually believe is that different strategies require different cultures. There's no such thing as a single transferable culture. If your strategy is to hunker down and survive in your business or your NGO, that takes one type of strategy. If your strategy is to big strides forward, that takes another type of culture. It's not a single transferable culture. There might be common elements, but... I think that culture, that the strategy frames culture rather than the other way around. And for me, strategy is the way you link means and ends. And so we have a mission, which is to help people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster survive, recover, and gain control of their lives. We have a vision, which was to be the operational and thought leader of the humanitarian sector and is now to ensure that the impact of our programs and the influence of our ideas will empower those caught in crisis to make lasting change in their lives. And so this was the idea that both through our, the programs that are delivered by our own staff or our partners and by others who copy us or follow us, we're about empowering the client. Our aim is to meet those original questions that we asked seven years ago, who do we serve, where do we work, what counts as success, which we defined as not not mentioning refugees or displaced people, it's people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster, which includes refugees but also includes displaced right. people. And wh- what counts as success? Well, that they survive... That they um, uh, recover and that they gain control of their lives. The point of this new strategy is to say, look, originally in 2014-15, it was meant to be a 10-year plan, not a five-year plan. And so we, we should be tough on ourselves about what we haven't achieved, but we should also drive on. So that's why we say it's about evolution, not revolution. We haven't yet delivered on the 2015 strategy, but we uh-huh. do want to look. We, we do want to put the rocket boosters under some of the
0: elements, and, and I've mentioned some of them. Just last question from me. How do you personally organise your time to check that your strategy is unfolding or where it's not unfolding as you ha- hoped to, to solve the problems? How do, you, how do you actually... Well, it's been very... The, the, the checking has been much more
1: difficult. Checking is quite a, a sort of um, controlling word, but... Yeah, yeah re- re- reviewing. One important element of my checking was... Uh, my quote-unquote checking was visiting, which, of course, I can't, haven't been able to do for the last two years. Um, but essentially, in terms of my time... I'm quite uh, focused on 20% strategy, 20% management, 20% programs, 20% finance and fundraising, and 20% advocacy and communications. So that's sort of how right. my time right. is, is is spent. And I, I kind of, I don't, I'm not sort of measuring it by the minute, but I kind of know when I'm out of whack on any right. of them. And I say, hey, and, and what's been tough. It has been the program side. So by three months into COVID, it was, hey, I'm not visiting programs. We've got to start doing virtual visits to country programs. So I've literally met clients in south of Quetta, who are Afghan refugees, getting educated through a virtual visit. Um, Amazing. So, um, but how do we organize it? I mean, we meet once a week, then we have monthly meetings, which are sort of day meetings. And then we have a quarterly strategy review, which is also a day which um, is really data-driven. And we have now a, a, a data set which tries to look at organizational health but then drive into the outcomes that we're achieving. We've got work to do on that, but we, we kind of take off our, if you like, our executive hats and we put on our strategy hats um, once right. a quarter to try and uh, dig in. And, of course, you know, not everything goes right and there's always problems, but we're trying to balance the important and the urgent in that way.
0: Well, thank you very much. I've really, I've really learned a lot both in the, the challenges that you're taking on, the awesome and daunting challenges, but also the, the structured thinking and strategy that you're applying to meeting these problems in the age of impunity. Is there any last word you wanted to add? The last words are: I...
1: please visit www.rescue.org because it would be great if out of this yes. conversation people had a look at what we're doing, emailed me to yes. tell me why, why we're getting it wrong how we can do better um,
0: join the conversation Okay, brilliant. It's always a pleasure talking to you the, the depth and the clarity of your thinking is fantastic It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your time Of course. Nice to see you, Mike Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to my friend and guest David Miliband I'd love to hear your stories of change. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things. And don't forget to review the Accomplishment podcast and subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell. Thanks to her and to the rest of the team.